Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have a, an episode today which is sort of like a, a, a Gotterdammerung kind of episode. Um, we're right here at the at the cusp of the apocalypse, really, in Washington, D.C. I'm sure every, you know, we're recording this, to, you know, I don't know when you're listening to this episode, but we're recording it a few minutes after 12 noon on Wednesday. And at least in theory at the moment, we have the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure mini bill scheduled for tomorrow. We have this looming debt default, and it's probably looming a little more threateningly today than it has been, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem to be moving towards resolution. It seems to be escalating or the options for uh, resolving it seem to be diminishing. And then, of course, the big thing is, is there going to be a reconciliation bill? You know, for months, we've had this basic model, going to have a bipartisan hard infrastructure bill, and that's going to be coupled with a reconciliation bill, which will have some things that are kind of traditionally called infrastructure, but also have climate and a lot of social spending and stuff like that. And that, too, has escalated, for lack of a better word. We don't seem to be moving towards a resolution on that front, we seem to be moving towards a train wreck, an apocalypse, a twilight of the gods. You know, you can pick your pick your metaphor here. And it is it's worth noting that these things always seem worse and worse and worse until they're resolved. That's kind of the standard. And everybody has an interest in portraying it that way. Uh, But at the moment, they're doing a pretty good job of making the making the portrayal credible. And one of the sort of subsidiary parts of this story, the legislative agenda story of, of, of 2021, you know, you just heard I said, you know, there's the infrastructure bill, then there's a reconciliation bill. And sometimes the reconciliation bill is called the $3.5 trillion spending bill. Neither one of these are great names for a piece of legislation. I think we all know this. And there are a lot of reasons why we ended up kind of, you know, (laughs) here. Uh, For for the purposes of this uh, podcast monologue, the reconciliation bill is the Biden agenda. It's what he ran on when he ran for president. It's what he said he would do. It is the more formalized version of what he said he would do that he announced when he, you know, not long after he was sworn in as president. And it has nearly universal support among 
within both caucuses, Democratic caucuses up on Capitol Hill, House and the Senate. Now, a little back and forth here and there at the margins. Uh, the the left wing of the party would you know would want even more. Uh, there are certain things that uh, the actual moderates, uh, you know, more kind of centrist types among the Democrats on Capitol Hill, maybe aren't totally crazy about. But it's you know kind of big picture. Everybody's everybody's on board. And then you have other things that don't don't as 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 neatly fit into you know left right terms. One of those things is the climate part of the part of the bill, uh, you know, kind of on separate from the left right axis to the extent that 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 is still um, a, you know, a valuable prism to understand politics through. You've also got a climate axis. Some people, every, you know, everybody among the Democrats is wants to do something big on climate, but there's there's big and super big and then there's different ways of doing big and all that kind of stuff. But the really relevant thing here is that in the House and the Senate, everybody is on board with this basic plan, except for two people in the Senate. And depending on which way they, you know, wake up and get out of the bed, maybe maybe about 10 people in the House. And but that's softer, that's squishier. And and um, as is often the case, as is almost always the case, people in the House are more bendable. Right. There's fewer of them or that's actually wrong. There's more of them. They have they have you know less power individually, blah, 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 blah. blah. So this is really down to two people in the Senate. And I know I'm not telling you anything that you haven't been seeing and, and probably gnashing your teeth about for for weeks now. Um, but one thing that has become, I think, increasingly clear over the last week or so, and I would say increasingly clear among journalists and I'm not sure it's increasingly clear to the members up on the Hill, but they're being more open about it. They're saying it more explicitly. And that is that the biggest problem here does not seem to be Joe Manchin. Now, he's a really big problem. There's no question. And there and there's no question that he is going to demand a significant reduction in the overall spending of that $3.5 trillion kind of omnibus everything in one bill because we don't have a 50-vote system in the Senate bill. Um, and on a different axis, you know, what's he going to say okay to uh, on the climate front? But basically, you know, if, if, if you went back to December of 2020 and you say, all right, what's the, you know, who, who or I guess actually be early January, because that's when it was actually confirmed that the Democrats would have sort of like a notional majority. If you said, all right, who's going to be the problem? You'd say Joe Manchin's going to be the problem. That was just obvious. That's who he is. And I don't mean who he is like he's a bad guy. He may be a bad guy, but he's 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 from West Virginia. He's from a crazy, you know, crazily pro-Trump state, blah, blah. But, you know, that's not a surprise. We didn't know Kirsten Cinema would be the other person. But Joe Manchin has a has an M.O., a lot of grandstanding, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of negotiating through the press. And you're going to come down to the point where he demands a big haircut for the reconciliation bill using the kind of, you know, uh, bankruptcy law term, you know, he's going to shave a bunch off and then everything will move forward. The thing with Kirsten Cinema is it's not clear that's what she's doing. It's not clear what she's doing at all, frankly. And 
it's really not clear to me that allowing this to move forward is her plan at all. I don't mean allowing $3.5 trillion to go forward. Clearly, both of them need it to come down. And that's just reality. If you wanted it to be a different reality, Democrats should have gotten their act together more and elected more than 50 senators. That's just kind of where we are. Um, and, and, and we just don't know. And, and again, it, there's been a shift over even over the last 48 hours or so of, of members up on Capitol Hill saying this, that she's the issue. You know, she's been they practically have set up a new kind of congressional tram system to tram her over to the White House every like three hours, you know, for whatever they're talking about. And she hasn't, uh, uh, you know, put up anything. So in any case, uh, we are in in quite a spot. And as I said, it's always worth remembering that on big legislation, it always seems worse and worse and worse until it's resolved. I still think this is going to be resolved. I'm less and less confident of that. But if I had to say, what are the odds? I would say they're greater than 50%. Um, But that is more just history speaking than anything I can point to in the current you know, in, in, in the current, the current facts that are, that are, um, on the table. Now you heard at the beginning of the episode, we got our new theme song. We're going to talk about that a a little bit at the end of the episode. We're excited about that. And let me also remind you that Grady's cold brew ice coffee is sponsored the Josh Marshall podcast. Uh, You know, whether democracy ends or, or we get fascism or uh, Trump comes back and, and is the dictator, we're still going to have Grady's. So, you know, some things never change and that that's a good thing. Uh, their famous New Orleans style coffee stays fresh in your fridge so you never have to wait in line, pay coffee shop prices or leave your air conditioning. Concentrated and strong, Grady's tastes great however you take it. Black and bold, light and sweet, even spiked with some adult beverage. And Grady's is the best cold brew value around. Order a six pack of bean bags and you get 72 servings of cold brew shipped directly directly to your door for only 45 bucks and shipping's free. If you're ready to give it a try, get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That is Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, so uh, I'm going to toss it over to my co-host, Kate. But in, in this case, uh, we have the advantage that it's not only co-host, Kate, it's also congressional reporter, Kate. I, I'm not sure if she's been up there this morning yet, but she's been up there constantly, you know, kind of watching this stuff unfold uh, as it happens and, you know, trying to trying to get uh, tape recorders in front of the key players and, and find out what they're saying. And even when they get a little surly and grumpy like they did yesterday. So, Kate, what is what is going on? Give us the give us the read from actually being up there, not just seeing this stuff negotiated like on Meet the Press and stuff. Yeah. So I think the dynamic you kind of talked about in your opening is probably the most pervasive one right now, because Mansion and Cinema's abject refusal to be specific about what they want and what they don't want. I mean, they won't even give President Biden a top line number for a reconciliation package that they would accept, much less pointing to any, you know, taxes or programs that they have beef with. It really is kind of like holding a gun to this whole process because the two pieces, as we've been saying, are so linked. And I think the frustration is really palpable because you talk to these other lawmakers who are, you know, and as we've said, almost all of them are really invested in this except for these two senators. 
And there's just this sense that no one knows what's going to happen next because these two are refusing to play ball. I mean, like you say, Biden has hauled cinema in particular down to the White House like four times yesterday and today is sending deputies to the Hill to meet with her. And per the latest reporting from that meeting, she's hesitant to give specifics until her bipartisan bill passes. Now, let me ask you, let me ask you two questions. First, is what I am saying about the, the cinema situation seeming different from the mansion situation? Is, is that how people are seeing it? Or is that just my kind of filtering it through my own prism? I hear what you're saying, but I haven't. I haven't gotten the sense that they're really differentiating the two because whether or not their political background makes sense, kind of the fact of the matter is the two of them are equally putting everything at risk right now and are equally refusing to give any kind of details about what the reconciliation package would have to be to get their votes. Now, um, is, is there yeah. is is it let's play devil's advocate for a second because you know, the the, the the overriding thing here is the trust is totally broken down yep. between these two and everyone else, mm-hmm. basically. Now, and, and and so kind of like, you know, we'll talk about it is just not going to cut it. Right. Is it not possible or is it possible that if you're Joe Manchin and you're saying, hey, I want this one bill to pass, I, I don't want to – once it passes – we will have that negotiation. Don't try to kind of like short circuit that negotiation, you know, whether or not you're going to pass my bill. And, and, you know, he might say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not not going to vote for the bill. We're going to have some disagreements. I'm going to bring it down. We're going to have that negotiation. Why are you trying to, you know, I'm not trying to screw everybody here. I, I'm the, the two things are separate. They need to be separate. Is now I guess that is in theory what they are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, is that maybe that's just true? Maybe maybe the progressive just have to kind of let go of the coupling idea and then negotiate it, and that's just how it is. Yeah, I just think it all comes down to trust. What you said. I mean, I think House progressives have less than zero belief that if bipartisan passes, Manchin and Cinema actually will stick to any kind of half-assed promise to be there on reconciliation. And further, I mean, these people see the maiming of reconciliation as nearly as bad. If they bring it down so small that the climate, the climate proposals will be inefficient, the taxing, you know, the kind of social safety net will have gaping holes in it. I mean, they don't see that as all that much better than having it be reconciliation be torpedoed altogether. And I think these two senators have made a name for themselves in kind of holding a knife to the throat of Biden's agenda at every turn so far this term. So the fact that they think they've got this kind of banked goodwill among other Democrats, that's enough to make progressives be like, okay, we'll give up our only leverage here because we trust you. I mean, it's just, it's ludicrous. What have they done to make progressives trust them except kind of bring every piece of legislation to the brink of death and then well, take let, let a half ask, step back. Let me ask you this. Isn't, doesn't this really come down to how much do they want the bipartisan bill? Because I, I think the fear is, and it's certainly, I wouldn't even say it's my fear. It's almost my assumption that they don't really care about it that much. They want it to pass. They definitely want it to pass. It's, you know, it's their bill. It's, 
you know, cinema at least had the kind of, uh, you know, publicly was supposedly assembling it and, you know, mm-hmm. negotiating and all that kind of stuff. But it seems to me the the key thing is that the progressives want this way, way, way more than Mansion and Cinema do. I mean, this is kind of everything for them. Not just you have you have. It seems to me there's a spectrum of people. Some progressives actually think the, the bipartisan bill is a bad bill. They'll vote for it to get reconciliation. I think. Most probably say it's not it's not perfectly designed, but yeah, a lot of you know a lot of surface transportation spending, great, you know, awesome. But they, but progressives, this is kind of life or death. And for Mansion and Cinema, if if everything goes down, kind of like okay, you know, Cinema like a roads person or surface transport. No, this was all positioning for her. Yeah, I mean, I think the two of their investment in the bipartisan bill pretty much stops at the point of they can say this is a bipartisan victory. It perhaps doles the argument against the filibuster. And I think that's about the extent of it. I don't I don't think either of them are Paul are kind of like ideologically involved enough to even really care about the content. But um, yeah, I mean, and it's 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 just so baffling to watch these two people do everything in their power to hurt the party as much as possible. I mean, Republicans are gleeful at this situation because they don't even have to do anything. You know, they can kind of sit back and watch Manchin and Cinema take the whole thing hostage. And they're not negotiating in good faith. I mean, they're not trying to kind of meet the president where he's at. And then to, on top of it all, like you say, I've been on, I've been at the Hill a lot lately. They w- will barely talk to reporters. I mean, Cinema will not talk to anyone. She won't do hallway interviews, which, if you ask me, should be disqualifying to be a public servant. You know, you signed up for this. This is your job. Manjin, when I was up there yesterday, he just refused to answer anything. We were around him shouting questions at him and he just wouldn't respond. Well, so see, is th- this that that part actually when I saw that about Mansion, mm-hmm. I found that vaguely encouraging because at this point in the process, you want people to stop negotiating in public. Talk to the president, you know, figure it out with the president. Negotiating in public is not helpful. So now that doesn't mean that's actually what that signified, but I was, you know, kind of more encouraged than anything. I think cinema doesn't talk to the press and and you tell me you're up there but my sense is this is not new she's this is she's been this way oh, for yeah. the entire year basically I, I think it it it's it that is a combination of that she really doesn't have any interest or familiarity with the policy question so it's hard to answer questions and there's also some like interpersonal issues or something she has uh but i mean again i i, I to me the big issue is the unknown in what is in in what cinema is is up to frankly i get what i get where mansion's coming from i get where he's coming from he wants the bill to be smaller that is both kind of uh his preference it's also his brand um he's always been that way Makes sense yeah, for his but then state. Say it, you know, say how small you want it to be. Progressives no, I, are I, begging I, to know what concessions I, to make here. I, I agree. I, I mean, the the Occam's Razor says that his number is too low to get the progressives to vote for the for his bill. I mean, what else would it be? Right. Um, exactly. I, I, I think that 
I still have some vague hope that that I mean, neither of these people are terribly strategic. Um, so you do not have to assume that they have fully gamed this out. In fact, I would assume they have not gamed this out. Neither one of them is uh, they're just not detail people. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to throw more uh, gas on the fire. Um, but yeah. So let's talk about this in terms of the vote that as of now is still scheduled for tomorrow. This is the vote listeners will remember that was forced by Josh Gottheimer and crew uh, out of a desperate burning need to get those roads repaved right now, despite the fact that the money from the bill does not actually become unlocked until October 1st. Details. Why worry about that when you're putting your party in a hostage situation? So that vote is still scheduled for tomorrow. The dynamics at play here are that, as we've said, House progressives, as of yesterday, they said a majority of their 96-person caucus intends to vote against the bipartisan bill unless the Senate passes reconciliation first, which is not going to happen. There's been some movement from congressional leadership. Uh, Pelosi just said a few hours before we went on air that it was important to get an agreement on the legislative language of the reconciliation package that has Joe Biden's blessing before the House passes the bipartisan bill. And she since then left the door open to not holding the vote tomorrow and has you know, reminded people that as speaker, she has the unilateral power to delay it, kind of softening the ground for if that vote doesn't actually happen tomorrow. Well, and doesn't she also, I mean, she has the power not only to delay it, but she can hold the vote, it passes, and then she can just like put it in her pocket. And right. I don't know exactly the dynamics of this, but basically, you know, we kind of see it as, oh, it's passed, now it goes to the president. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't walk, it doesn't walk over there on its own. The speaker has to send, or I guess, I'm not sure it's the speaker, it's who, it's, it's whichever was the second house to pass the bill, um, sends it over. So, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of elasticity here and wiggle room that they can take advantage of. They can delay the vote, they can hold the vote and Pelosi doesn't send it to Biden. She can send it to Biden and Biden can wait. I think the president has don't quote me on this. I believe the 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 rule is that the president has 10 days to sign or, you know, veto a bill, not including Sundays. And if he doesn't sign it, then it's a pocket veto. Then it just so there, there's 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 a lot of wiggle room here. There's a lot of 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 ways to kind of keep that leverage in play. But eventually, you need those two to put something on the table that is meaningful. You know, either kind of like a number that 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 the other side can trust. But so the point is, is that, and, and obviously I'm not telling you this, Kate, but just for our listeners, um, the vote tomorrow isn't locked in stone. And even if it were locked in stone, there's other things, there's other lever, lever, eh, levers you can pull, but it still comes down to it. At, at some point, you need people to, to know that they're going to be there for that other vote. So what I was kind of thinking about this is in some way, when that news came out yesterday, that you know, the bills are being decoupled or that the vote was still intending to go forward Thursday. To my mind, I was almost like, okay, have it Thursday, have progressives kill it, 
then you've kind of bought yourself a few more weeks in which you can actually get something robust together on reconciliation, which heightens the chance of actually passing both bills. I mean, this deadline is completely arbitrary and has loaded pressure on the attempts to pull together the reconciliation package, which is sprawling and long and a lot of work, even when you take out the negotiations on everything from the top line to the specifics of particular policy. And the thing that I was kind of watching that I think would derail that plan would be if House Republicans kind of rallied to pass the bipartisan bill, which I think would probably kill reconciliation or at least provide the, the biggest threat to it that I can kind of imagine right now. As of now, and I've been watching this really closely, that doesn't seem to be the case. House Republicans seem to have made the calculation that voting against to where they prefer voting against any piece of Biden's agenda rather than kind of having this longer term view of killing the part that actually matters. Um, and they're still whipping against it. They're trying to limit defections as much as possible. And I did a little blog post on this, but my kind of back of the envelope math that I've been using about this is the last time that we saw any kind of significant House Republican defection was on the January 6th commission. There we saw 35 Republicans kind of disobey McCarthy and vote for the commission. Okay, so we've got this rough number. Okay, 35 is somewhere in the neighborhood of Republicans who are willing to go against leadership in the House. And then on the progressive side, they said yesterday that a majority of their 96 member caucus is planning to vote down the bill. Right now, just by that very, very rough math, that gives progressives a bit of an edge in who, you know, in if this bill will pass or not. And of course, you know, it's murky. Maybe more House Republicans find it an easier lift to disobey McCarthy on roads and bridges than they did on a January 6th commission. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it, it seems to me that they're, I mean, they're very, very different questions. I mean, I, I, I don't, no Republican voted for that commission thinking like, ah, this is gonna, gonna help me back in the district. Mm -hmm. I mean, th this was, I don't want to be like schmaltzy about it, but these were votes of, of principle. They just didn't think they could, you know, it, they couldn't not vote for it. Um, and ironically, like take Liz Cheney. Is she going to vote for the, for the, for the infrastructure bill? No, just, she doesn't support that. Right. I mean, she's, so it, it's, 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 it's all different. Um, and I, and I suspect that's only going to happen if there's a decision as a caucus. Let's jam them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so far, they have not made that. Clearly, they have not made that decision. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, Biden can veto it. You know, I mean, <laughs> they certainly don't. That would be a very bad place to be. But he does still have to sign it. Um, and, and frankly, I... I've got a hard time. I mean, I'm not up there. It's got a hard time sort of processing all, you know, kind of where everybody is. But I'd be surprised. Is it is it really the case that 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 none of the hundred plus uh, d Democrats in the House who are not members of the Progressive Caucus, none of them are going to vote against this? I don't. That doesn't seem. That doesn't make sense to me. And frankly, I would kind of like. Are there 40 members of the Progressive Caucus who are going to say, yep, I'm down for it? Now, the, 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 uh, the other factor here is that when the speaker asks you to do something, a lot of people, they're going to do it just because for all the reasons 
why that's the case. But um, well, that's a piece. And I think it's really important to this calculation we're talking about, which is we're in an era of Congress now where congressional leaders, probably more on the Senate side, but overall, they have a ton more power than they used to. And there are a ton more members who will not derivate from what the leadership tells them to do. And that's why the other piece of this that I've been watching really closely along with what House Republicans are saying is whether or not Pelosi and Clyburn are going to whip their members to vote for the bill. Are they going to apply that leverage and and dare them to defy the speaker? As of yesterday, Clyburn had not started whipping yet. Right. So that tells Again, us. Tells the votes us the on story. Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Now, isn't it? I, I, we had an update on the site about this. Isn't it also the case? I mean, it, it's it's not whipping exactly, but the White House also isn't. The, the White House basically put out a message like we're with the Progressive Caucus here. Mm-hmm. So uh, now I one of the things that is a really critical question here and is very hard to kind of get your hands on is there's all this stuff about, you know, kind of threats and sequence of events and stuff like that. But let's say that you could, um, you know, in a in a idealized world, if someone said, okay, I'm in charge of the whole situation, here are the two final potential outcomes, infrastructure bill and no reconciliation bill, or everything goes down. Where would Democrats line up? Um, or, or to put it, or to put it a little differently, if at the end of the day it was a hundred percent clear that only the infrastructure bill can pass, do you vote to pass it? I, I know where I stand on that, um, but that's a that's a pretty basic question. You know, do, do, do I mean a uh, how much do Democrats see the infrastructure bill as as an important piece of legislation in itself, and then separately, do they how how willing are they to accept basically the abject humiliation of their entire political coalition and its agenda to get that infrastructure bill? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. No, nobody, no Democrats are talking publicly about that being an option um, or a possibility, rather. I do think what we're kind of seeing from the progressives playing a bit of hardball here is the weariness that nearly the entire caucus feels about caring about and kowtowing to Biden and or uh, Cinema and Mansion's demands for months on absolutely everything. Um, and I, I wonder if that's when this kind of comes to a head because they know, everyone knows, after this legislation, no matter what happens to it, unless Cinnamon Mansion changed their minds. Th- this is it. There's not going to be any more legislating happening for the foreseeable future. So, if you're going to make your stand, if you're going to make your burn it all down stand, this is the time to make it. Because you can say everything you want after this. Doesn't matter. It's all going to be floor speeches and resolutions and nothing real. Yep. Yep. So, and there are a few, a couple other moving pieces here we should talk about, which are the government shutdown and the debt ceiling. Let's take the shutdown first because that one is easier and more open and shut. Basically, what Democrats are trying to do earlier is keep the money to fund the government and the legislation to suspend the debt ceiling linked. 
basically because Republicans don't want to shut down, but they want Democrats to deal with the poison pill of the debt ceiling by themselves. So Democrats thought you keep these things together and what they want makes them swallow the part they don't want. Unsurprisingly, that did not work. Republicans lost no time in voting it down. So-called, you know, moderates, nowhere to be found, complete party line vote. So Democrats have kind of now come to the realization a little bit that Republicans are not going to be shamed, <laughs> that you can't kind of use your what I think is a very valid fury to bow to bow them because they don't care. I mean, McConnell's been showing this forever. They don't care. They want to win. They don't care if it's fair. They don't care if it's hypocritical. So they've separated out the government funding bill into you know what's called a clean continuing resolution. Republicans of all stripes, and I'm talking Rand Paul stripes, have said they're not going to object to it. So it seems like funding the government will probably pass on a pretty healthy bipartisan basis because it's by itself, which now leaves the much bigger problem of the debt ceiling. We now know because this week, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that the Treasury will basically <laughs> lose its ability to like dig in the couch cushions to find coins to pay off our debts on October 18th, thereabouts. So that's a hard limit for when things are going to get very bad. But Democrats are so, so angry about what Republicans are doing with the debt ceiling that they are still trying not to capitulate to McConnell's demands, which is that they deal with the debt ceiling through reconciliation. And his motives there have been like pretty transparent from the beginning because he thinks it'll endanger the package they're working on through reconciliation. Plus, there's no precedent for suspending or abolishing the debt ceiling through reconciliation. There's only precedent for raising it, which means that Democrats would have to come up with a specific number, which, you know, Republicans are disingenuously going to use in attack ads uh, later on. So instead, Democrats are kind of trying to have a series of shame votes against Republicans. They already did the one I mentioned with the linked funding and debt ceiling. That's done. Yesterday, Schumer asked for unanimous consent on a clean debt ceiling suspension bill. McConnell uh, wasted about two seconds before he objected to that. And now they're trying this workaround where the House passes the clean debt ceiling bill first, then it comes to the Senate where Republicans are going to block it again. And the tricky thing about this is I, I get it. I get what Democrats are trying to do. They're trying to make Republicans feel the pain that they deserve for being so irresponsible with the debt ceiling. But again, it's just Republicans don't care and they have the power to block it thanks to Manchin and Cinema and the filibuster. And my concern here is that it does take time to amend the budget resolution to do the debt ceiling through reconciliation. Like that is kind of a finicky process. And I think we now, might get zero in on that because that is the one point, you know, I've had people ask me, why not just put it in the debt ceiling? Like, just like, just do it. What's the, what's just put the it problem? In reconciliation, you mean? Uh, yes. Put it in mm -hmm. reconciliation. And uh, there's the optic stuff that you mentioned, mm -hmm. but my understanding has been, well, it's procedurally hard and it's complicated and it'll mm -hmm. take time and kind of complicate everything. But what, why? why? Why is that the case? I don't, I don't exactly understand that myself. Well, there's a few reasons. So because Democrats didn't include a debt ceiling hike in their original budget resolution that's governing the whole thing, they have to go back and amend it. And 
people aren't exactly sure how long this whole process will take because so they need to amend it and get that voted out of the budget committee. However, the parliamentarian issued this controversial opinion earlier in the term where she said that amended budget resolutions can't be auto discharged from the budget committee, which basically means that before, if there was a budget uh, resolution and the committee is, you know, deadlocked or anything like that, after a certain date, it becomes automatically discharged to the floor. In this case, if the auto discharge isn't present, I don't know why they would, but it gives Republicans an opening to torpedo the whole thing. Basically, if the Republicans on the budget committee chose to like boycott the meetings where they're trying to get this done, it would just stall out. It wouldn't go anywhere. Now, isn't doesn't um Separate from this, doesn't the majority leader always have the ability to say, oh, pulling it out of the committee, we're just going to do it on the floor? Well, not not now because of the because of uh, the parliamentarian's decision. OK, he, so, before yeah. the budget resolution did get discharged automatically to the floor. And if there is a tie because the Senate Budget Committee is evenly split in accordance with the organizing resolution. If there's a tie, it's this whole long process, but basically Democrats could yank it out of committee and put it on the floor if there's a tie. But if Republicans chose to like pull this boycott stunt because they refused to like vote for a budget for a debt ceiling hike in any way, shape or form, they could basically kill it. So that's like a small piece of the problem. But then after that, it'll have to bounce between the House and the Senate a bit. There's going to be a voterama, um, you know, it's just and there this has been done before four times in history, but there just isn't a amending really, amending a buzzer, budget resolution to put in a to well to, to put, put a, a, a debt ceiling hike into reconciliation. Got it. Got it. Got but it. there isn't there just isn't a nailed down timeline of how long it'll take. People have estimates, but nobody's completely sure. And OK, so and, and I get but I guess the other sort of governing thing here is from what you just told us that. That would mean that the Democrats have to completely finalize their reconciliation bill like before October 18th or more like, bef- you know, you can't go down to the wire. So, so basically their ability to legislate their agenda, the president's agenda is now has a time limit of debt default attached to it. Right. Yep. So – all those reasons are why Democrats don't want to do this. And, you know, just at its base, they want to suspend the debt limit. They don't want to raise it because mm-hmm. they don't want to be attached to, quote unquote, creating trillions of dollars of new debt. Right. Um, right, right. So that's the situation. And then, you know, with this this standoff that they're doing right now where they're like, no, we're doing this through regular order. Republicans are going to help us. They're being irresponsible. Again, I get it, but I think you get to a certain point where those squishy timelines about how long it takes to get through reconciliation, you start to run out of time to do that. And then we're in a situation where the U.S. will default on its debt unless, A, Republicans blink and help Democrats suspend the debt ceiling, or B, Manchin and Cinema agree to at least a carve out on the filibuster so Democrats can just do it by themselves. Well, let me, okay. So it, it, it seems to me there's at least possibly another option here or, or another moving part. And that is that parliamentarians 
that's just advice. The majority can 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 disagree with the parliamentarian, and that's and that's that. And and that also comes down to you need fifty votes. Um, so, you know, this whole thing is like. I mean, I'm sort of imagining listeners kind of just shaking their heads, lis- listening to how how you know kind of ridiculous this all is, but another way for them, they wouldn't have to go to the filibuster. They could just say, okay, we're just going to agree. We're going to overrule the parliamentarian on that. So that whole discharge thing kind of goes away and we'll overrule the parliamentarian on this whole thing about you can't do a suspension and just done and done. And that, I mean, I, I, I just can't imagine them giving way on the filibuster, but, but overruling the parliamentarian, which is something that happens I don't want to say it happens all the time, but it certainly happens, you know, and, and, and there's no reason why it shouldn't. I mean, if it, that, that's at least a possibility. Um, and I, I guess it's worth, it is worth coming back to here. The overriding reality that all of the, you know, you know, those things they call Chinese finger puzzles, you know, mm-hmm. where you put your finger in the thing and you pull out and you can't can't get it out. Uh, all of these legislative Chinese finger puzzles that that Kate has described, all of them are resolvable by the two senators. Mm-hmm. You can you can you can carve something out of the filibuster. You can overrule the parliamentarian. Uh, you could do any of these things. Um, so all of these things are fundam- fundamentally self-imposed. Um, and that's why it's funny because I've, I've tried to make this clear in my commentary in various contexts that whether it's abiding by the filibuster rules or refusing to overrule the parliamentarian or, you know, all of these different kind of things, there's always this urge to kind of see them as separate issues. I, I'm for the For the People Act, but I can't go there on the filibuster. In reality, these are all the same thing. And so everything is, everything Kate is describing are so many planets or satellites or stars revolving around the same black hole, which is these two senators. It's all down to this one thing. They are just different ways of dressing up the same reality. Yep. I mean, if they would agree to get rid of the filibuster right now, imagine how different the situation we'd be talking about is. For one thing, Democrats wouldn't have to pass the entirety of Biden's agenda in one vehicle. They wouldn't be able to be held hostage by Republicans on the debt ceiling or government shutdown. I mean, it just it would be a totally different situation. They wouldn't have to craft all their policy to survive the bird rule. We wouldn't care what the Senate parliamentarian thinks about anything. I mean, the filibuster is taking a hard situation and it is a hard situation because Democrats are just not as homogenous as Republicans. It's a it really is a big tent party when you've got AOC and Joe Manchin in the same party. So it wouldn't be easy. I'm not saying that, but it wouldn't be so torturous as it is. I mean, so many of these problems could be taken care of in one fell swoop. But now because of these two, and their love of the filibuster, you know, I think I'll have a piece on this coming up later today. But I was asking around yesterday, okay, why don't you just take this opportunity to do the do the debt ceiling and reconciliation? But, you know, don't even mess with the parliamentarian, but raise the limit so high that it's taken off the table as a weapon for Republicans in the foreseeable future. 
a lot of people like that idea. And it's not just the Bernie Sanders types, but it's like so much that's happening in Congress right now. It doesn't matter what the 48 senators want. It only matters what these two won't allow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We should move to questions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What are our questions? Um, okay. This is from Jeffrey. We've touched on this a bit. He says, I was wondering if you think Biden might actually veto the BIF if it gets passed without a reconciliation bill. Um, you, what do you think? I mean, I, I, I wish yes, but I think no. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't know the answer to that. And the reason I don't know the answer to that is that it, it goes to, it's sort of impossible to game that out without thinking of the sort of the, the final conclusion of this whole drama. Um, would they just not sign it for a while to maintain that leverage? I'm not sure that's exactly how these guys roll. That's pretty aggressive. And I'm not sure that's them, but maybe um, it's pretty hard to imagine them, you know, kind of vetoing the thing you negotiate. You know, I don't know. But like Kate, I I think that's more, you know, trillion dollar coin territory. I mean, I think he should. I, I've been of the camp that like I've been surprised by how progressive the Biden administration has been for the most of it. But I'd say my my frustrations in the opposite direction have mounted recently because yesterday uh, at the White House press briefing, the press secretary said, you know, someone asked, why not just get rid of the filibuster and do debt ceiling yourself? And she said the, the president's position has not changed on that. And that on I'm the just, filibuster on the filibuster. And it's just, you know, that to me is kind of ripping your hair out territory. It's like, come on, man, you're watching Republicans take your party hostage again. They've done this for like a decade now. I, I guess I, I, I guess I don't know. Those comments never mean much to me because what does it, it it's not up to him. So it, it, it's I, I don't believe that if Joe Manchin came to them and said, hey, filibuster's out of hand. Let's get rid of it. Biden's not going to be like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm a filibuster man. I just don't. I, I, it's it's, it's kind of one of these things. It, it seems to me similar to like, you know, why don't you bring Joe Manchin down to the White House and, and make him an offer he can't refuse? Well, because he can refuse and you don't want to. It, it doesn't it doesn't advantage the president to to come out for something that he can't win on or that's not under his control. Yeah, um, I just I don't anyway, know that he right. I don't know that we know he can't win on it until he comes out for it. I hear what you're saying. And I, I get he doesn't want to give away political capital, but kind of the options he's facing is like the abject doom of his party, not to mention the planet or not. So I think at some point you got to start taking risks. I don't know. Yeah, I hear you. All right. Question from Michael. In following the current rift between moderates and progressives, I've been struck by the fact that I'm not sure what group of voters the moderate Dems are trying to appeal to. I feel like a big infrastructure bill is super popular with lots of the electorate because it has lots of stuff people want. This is interesting and I think very true in a way that hasn't been talked about too much until recently when we're starting to see stories pop up a little bit about the uh, the ACA battle and how some vulnerable members voted for it and lost their seats or invited in way harder reelections, but kind of had this this principled stand of 
you know, I, I forget the guy's name, but it's everywhere right now. The one that the quote that's like, you know, some things are worth losing re-election. Oh, uh, God, the guy's a friend of mine. Uh, I'm sp- I'm feeling bad because I'm sp- I'm totally spacing on his name. Congressman from Virginia who uh, voted for it and went mm-hmm. down to and then defeat. lost his seat. Yes, and uh, is now oh, is the you know one of the uh, Tom Periello. Yeah, is that Tom it? Periello. And he's now yeah. the head of the Soros Foundation or or one component of the Soros Foundation. But and like, he, I think I he sh- did an op-ed in in the Post. Or right, something. and and I think people are using this to talk about is like you know bravery of of moderates than V now. But I think an important part of it is also at that point, the ACA was not very popular. So taking a stand on it was politically dangerous. Whereas all the polling we've seen on the infrastructure stuff they're working on now is quite the opposite. I mean, it's very popular, which I think does put these people's it makes these people's position a little more silly. And I get you can say, oh, it's popular now. Maybe it won't be when it's as much when it's being carried out. Maybe there will be problems. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe. But from right now, it seems like a more popular thing to do to get this money into people's pockets, to get this kind of, you know, social safety net in place and all the rest than it does to oppose it. Yeah, well, I would say, you know, it is we can fool ourselves with polls sometimes. Um, you ask people, do you agree to this thing, uh, to free community college or child tax credit, all these kind of things. And you get everybody's like, oh yeah, awesome. And then when, you know, a year later, when you say, oh, you know, the Democrats spent $50 trillion and blah, 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 blah. Then everybody's, oh, that sucked. I'm going to vote against them. So you don't really know those polls can fool us, but basically you're right. It's not like the ACA. Um, but I think I think the answer, what is important to come back to the 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 questioner whose name I'm forgetting said, you know, uh, who are the moderates? What constituency are they speaking for? It's not the moderates. It's Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. The moderates, the actual moderates, they're all in favor of this. There are oh, moderates. Yeah. If you you know, however you want to kind of define it exactly, there's lots of those people in the Democratic caucuses. And I think in this case, there are there are two very different answers. One answer is that uh, Joe Manchin State went went for Trump by like 35 points or something. It is an insanely pro-Trump state. So now people can say, oh, West Virginia, it's a poor state. They need the money. Uh, the things are popular. Uh, People understand their constituencies. And I think that, again, we can fool ourselves with polls. I think that's Manchin's thing, basically. Who cinema is, is, again, that is, she's not speaking for anybody. Democrats in her state hate her. She's not going to, she's not even going to get the nomination again to run for Senate in, 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 in three years. Um, so this is, this is much more specific and characterological. The actual moderates, there are lots of moderates, um, they're, they are, uh, they're supporting it. They're not only supporting it. The ones I talked to yesterday on this kind of abolish or de facto abolish the debt ceiling question, I mean, they're for it. It's kind of shocking and you wouldn't know it at all from the situation we're in right now. But particularly in the Senate, those 48 senators are like incredibly unified but it doesn't matter because we got these two. All right, last question from Grant. How much do you think that the parties know about each other's actual negotiating positions? 
very little (laughs) from my experience talking to the senators and basically they all get peppered with questions every day, which is like, okay, but where are Manchin and Cinema on this? I really, really, I know they don't want to divulge internal discussion. So even to the extent that they are having them, I don't think they would tell but I really don't think they know. I don't think they have any clearer sense than we do. Well, so it wasn't I, the, the I think there was more text to the question. And I thought the questioner was basically saying, like, you know, does Pelosi know what Manchin is saying or or did has he not told her or has he told it to Biden or does Biden know and Pelosi doesn't know? Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure those like I don't think Biden's keeping anything from Pelosi or vice versa. And. And maybe this is what you're saying, Kate, but my sense is that, yes, to Pelosi, Manchin is just not telling her where he stands. He's not saying, hey, look, I'm at two trillion. I can't say that publicly, but, you know, between us, that's where I am. I think if that were the I think if he were saying that, we'd probably be moving forward. hundred percent. Because, you know, maybe she would say, look, you got to come to two point five. We can't go below that. But two point five you tell you know you give me your agreement we're not going below 2.5 you don't have to say it publicly i will get my caucus to get behind this i th- that is what i think that is i mean to the extent that i have hope that this is going to be resolved that is the path that you have some commitments maybe even private commitments um where they say look we're not going to we're not going to go below this we're going to have a fight, but we're not going to go below this. And, and, um, you know, I'll be there for the vote and I'm not going to say it publicly. And I think at that point, the president and Pelosi would say, you know, whatever they need to do to, to feel like they've got an agreement that's going to stick. And again, I, I, I kind of get the sense that like, I think if Manchin said that to those two, I think they have relationships with Manchin. They would say, okay, I believe you. I think you're going to do that. We're going to move ahead. I'm not sure anybody believes Kirsten Cinema, or 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 that even knows what her game is. But to the to answer the question, I don't think that's happening. And it's almost definitionally we know it's not happening because if it, if it were happening, we'd be moving forward. Well, and if it were happening, we wouldn't have had that, you know, some reporting about Schumer being annoyed that Pelosi didn't tell him that she was still going to hold the vote on Thursday. There's like a little bit of bickering over that, which I don't think is super important in any way other than it kind of proves that point, you know, because if if they, you know, if one of them found that up from Manchin, all of them would know. So the fact that Schumer is worried about this bipartisan infrastructure vote right. to any degree right. shows that they have not gotten that agreement. And then this just, you know, it's further proof today when Pelosi said, if we have a legislative agreement, on reconciliation, then we can have the bipartisan vote. And it would probably pass because truly progressives are just asking for any detail at all right now. And then Manchin immediately comes out and says, well, that's not going to happen. Like, that's not how we've been negotiating. And that's where my pessimism comes in. I mean, Biden's dragging them into the office. It really seems like he's kind of doing all he can. The rest of the caucus is very aware of the stakes and it, it just hasn't seemed to matter. Neither of them feel like they owe their coworkers, that they owe the people they represent any detail about why they're doing this. And until that calculus changes, I don't know. I don't know how it survives because unless you find some way to like hold off the bipartisan bill 
forever and use that as some kind of leverage? Right, I don't know. Right, right. Well, again, I, I think the way for, for our listeners, the way to understand this is that is that Mansion and Cinema are saying to the rest of the party, you vote on our bill, you pass our bill. And in exchange, we are going to give you this black box. And inside the black box, maybe $2.5 trillion uh, reconciliation bill, maybe $3 trillion reconciliation bill, or maybe nothing at all. And that's our offer. And so pass our bill, and then we'll give you the black box. And and so everybody's saying, like, <laughs> as long as what's in the box might be nothing, no. Like, they're not even – how can I put this? They're not even – they're not even uh, – giving the Democrats the the credit of lying to them. Like they could say, yes, we will be there. We'll be there for you. We got a deal. And then just screw them and not and not do the deal. I'm not sure it's better or worse, but they're saying, here's our deal. We may give you nothing or we may give you something. It'll be fun. It's a mystery. You know, there's always that person in your life who says when something, when we have a kind of an issue like that, like it's a mystery. Love the mystery. Well, they're not loving the mystery. And that, and, and so here we are. Okay, so uh, let's let's uh, so we have a theme song. So what do you think? Okay, like I think you were there was there was so for our listeners, we got lots and lots of emails um, about the theme song, and that was great because that really yeah, they did, were really fun. Yeah, the, and and they really did figure into our opinion. And at first, I think at the very beginning, they were kind of heavily weighted toward the eventual winner. Um, which is by a guy named uh, Why Not Jansfeld, who I think is what he, he's he's Dutch, right? Mm -hmm. he, he's uh, he's from the Netherlands. And I assume like not just, uh, you know, he's got roots in the Netherlands. I think he's from the Netherlands. I don't know if he, he like lives in the Netherlands now and he's one of our few like, you know, Dutch listeners. Uh, in any case, um, uh, then we got, you know, lot, uh, you know, a, a lot more emails and it was basically there were a lot of supporters of all three candidates, and I think the most were for um, the most were for the first, you know, for the one that 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 won, and then uh, the second most were probably for the meandering snake song, which was the first one we played in the last episode, and then there were also a lot for the for the third song. Um, but in any case, uh, that was that really helped, and that really kind of it it. It played into our uh, eventual decision, and we were pretty unanimous at the end of the day that that this was our uh, that this was our our choice. Our, our producer Jackie says that uh, she thinks that uh, why not uh, lives in the United States now, but he's you know he's from the Netherlands. Yeah, it was great. I have to say, it was a it was a fun process. It was cool seeing how many of you are multi talented and. The the weighing in on the songs was cool. We heard from so many of you and it felt like, you know, obviously some of you had favorites. That wasn't the one we picked, but it felt like a kind of a communal decision. And it was, I don't know, it was just nice to hear from so many of you because a lot of times, you know, we're, we're just talking out into the void. It's just, it's nice to know it's not a void, that it's full of people who are kind of weathering the political storm and weighing in on a political on a theme songs with us so yeah totally it's totally. been fun it's been a, a real bright spot and i i would say you know keep emailing in because you know we've i i i assume that the that the the great majority maybe the overwhelming majority of our listeners are also readers of the site and uh but maybe not in entirely and also uh as the site has evolved not as 
in in recent years, I'm not sure everybody knows kind of how much our editorial process is connected to the emails we get from readers. It's a core part of our editorial process. And that and that's been the case for 20 years since I was doing this on my own. So we we love to hear from you and we read these emails. These do not go in some, you know, kind of uh, a random email box that 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 uh, no one looks at or they're kind of like, you know, there's a junior staffer whose job it is to read them. They go to all of our inboxes. So when you when you send an email in to talk at talkingpointsmemo.com, it is forwarded. It, it goes to every staff member, and uh, they, you know, I read most of them. I don't I don't read every single last one. There's a lot of them, but I read tons of them every day. I respond a lot. I'm not always able to respond. Uh, but they go to everyone else too, and everybody looks at them. And you know, some people look at them more than others. I think Kate is a uh, Kate is is on the more bought in side. As, oh yeah, as I read spectrum basically of, of, all of staffers. Them. Yeah, yeah. So that is so we love to hear from you, and uh, it's it's not just a um, it's not just a, a conceit or a marketing ploy or kind of like oh it's engagement. We want to hear from you. It's actually a core way of how we run stuff because we, we, we as, as Kate said, without your feedback, we're just talking into a void. But primarily, and don't want to get, don't want this to be buried. Thank you to Why Not Jansfeld yes. for making our new theme song. We love it. It's really cool that you were able to capture the vibe of the show in a song. And we, you know, we so appreciate your hard work. We're excited to have it be part of the, of the podcast every week. And just, you know, congratulations. There were so many good contenders and, you know, you should feel, you should feel very proud. We loved it. We're excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, um, it was sort of a, you know, it's, it's a funny thing listening to so many songs, right? And you're kind of like, oh, you know, you go back and forth. It's, 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 but by the end we were all, uh, you know, it was, it was totally unanimous. So yes, thank you so much. Congratulations. Um, we're, we are so excited to have it as as our you know as our theme song going forward and thank you to everyone else who submitted i mean again it was it was a uh, a kind of an embarrassment of riches and it was mm-hmm. it was a complicated process to figure out not just do i like this song but how's it play as a as a you know as a, as a podcast theme song so we're just gonna have to start up like 30 more podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Use them all. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, let me remind uh, remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're ready to give it a try, you can get 25% off your first order at gradyscoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. Thanks, everyone. Later.